Welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm assistant sports editor Mark Faulkner, joined by beat reporter Ted Colfin. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from NHL referee and a former Detroit Red Wing, Wes McCauley. But first, Ted, since our last podcast, the Red Wings re-signed restricted free agent Anthony Mantha, four-year contract worth $22.8 million with a $5.7 million salary cap hit each season. What did you think of the new deal, Ted? I thought it was a fair deal for both sides. That's basically what you're looking for, one. Mm-hmm. Both sides seem very happy with it. Uh, good move for the Wings. I mean, they now have one of their cornerstones signed long-term past a little bit of his free un- unrestricted free agency years. I tell you what, if he's – the the thing with Mantha's always been if he's healthy, he should be able to produce a lot of offense, a lot of goals. The problem with him has always been he's gets hurt every year and usually in a fight, it seems like. But mm-hmm. I think they're gambling that he's going to be able to stay healthy here coming up. And if he does, I mean, there's no reasoning to suspect he shouldn't score 30 to 35 goals a year. And if he does that, I mean, that contract's more than fair. It's almost maybe even undervalued. So it'll be interesting to watch. Ted, one of the questions about the potential of Anthony Mantha, will he be able to reach that 30-goal plateau down the road? There's one player that he's been compared to a little bit, another player taken in the first round, Nick Bukestad. In 2010, Bukestad went 19th overall. Mantha was 20th overall. In 2013, Bukestad is 6'6", Mantha is 6'5", and a little bit heavier. You asked Mantha what he's playing at, his weight and things, and he's up around 235. Bukestad's just a little bit smaller. Bukestad's best season was 25 goals, and that's the same number for Mantha right now. Bukestad makes $4 million, and Mantha, of course, just signed for a little bit more right now both players a lot of skill have learned how to play better defensively play without the puck be on the right side of the puck what what are your thoughts about his potential i think he will fly past bukestad i think at one time i mean you, when you look at the numbers he was compared just a year or two ago some of the numbers i was researching at one point mm-hmm. up there with the guys like marner and some of the guys making eight nine ten million dollars a year now that's kind of slowed down here the last year or two, but that's why I say this five point, what is it? 5.7. It's just under $6 million a year. Mm-hmm. It could turn out to be a value contract here. If he produces those 30 to 35 goals a year, uh, he's got that potential mark. I mean, there's no question, but just a matter of staying healthy. He has not been able to stay healthy. And another thing is when he doesn't, does not play with Dylan Larkin. It seems like his production slows for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It's always the he's uh, Jeff Blashell always says about the moving your feet when he Mantha does not move he's moved his feet. He's not nearly as effective. So I mean, there's things there he needs to keep working on, but mm-hmm. still only 26 some odd years. I think 26, 27 years old. There's in the prime of his career right now. Uh, he's Got a, he's, he has the opportunity to really leave an imprint in this organization here going forward. Mantha's only had four years, you're right, Ted, and 82 goals uh, since 2016 and 17. Those are comparable with some of the big young yes. in the league. So I was actually somewhat mildly surprised they were able to get him in under $6 million a year because I thought he would definitely be in that 6 to 6.5 neighborhood. So – well, I mean, good, good. Uh, but now with the COVID situation and the economics of the game, obviously the Mantha side, you know, 5.7, whatever it was, that seemed more than fair on their side. They were content with that. So it's probably a good move too. So we we'll just have to sit back and watch what happens when it develops here. Ted, you talked to Anthony Mantha on that Zoom conference call the other day. Here's your question about the uncertainty of the new season. Hey, Anthony, congratulations. Hey, um, thank you. How are you dealing with the uncertainty right now? I mean, you kind of alluded to it earlier. I mean, as far as training and stuff like that, I mean, preparing, I mean, is there just 
Is there some stress? Like, when is this season actually going to start and all that? I don't think there's a stress. I just think the guys are anxious to get back out there. Obviously, um, what was it, 16 teams or 26 teams or whatever it was played in playoffs and were just sitting at home watching hockey and uh, didn't really have a competition or anything of that sort in the last, what is it, eight months, nine months already. So uh, the guys want to get back out there. Hopefully we could have a, a estimated time for us to actually have a date. That would be step number one, you know. Uh, just mm-hmm. so we know exactly where we're going with our workouts, exactly where we're going with how many ice every week we need to hop on. And it, it's just like little details that maybe people don't think of, but it's just long for us to kind of get ready and have our body full, full 100% when the season hits. Ted, when do you think the NHL season begins? The last two times there were 48 game schedules. The season started on January the 20th. The NHL Board of Governors would like to start January the 1st. The NBA will start December the 22nd and play 72 games. The AHL and OHL are starting the week of like February 4th and 5th. What are your thoughts about when this season, the next season, will begin? Marcus is going to be fascinating. I mean, I give them credit. Obviously, you you know they need to get their business model up and running, and I really do suspect in some form they're going to be able to do it. We'll do it, but you just today as we speak, I mean, you see the cases surging all over North America. Mm-hmm. Going to be a tricky one. I mean, maybe even more tricky than what baseball and football went through. Uh, you're going to be right in the dead of winter. They're hoping for fans in the arena just to get a semblance of revenue flowing, but I don't see how you're going to be able to have very many fans at all in the vast majority of these markets. I don't know. They're hoping for at least a minimum 48, but probably like something more in the 56 to 60 game range. But there's so many obstacles going forward here. I guess a January 1st start is possible, but they really do seem to be shying away from the bubble, though. But only, like, I don't think the players want any piece of it. And frankly, the expenses involved and mm-hmm. be looking at every expense. They're going to be like every other business model out there right now. They are going to be looking at every expense out there, and that just might be a little too rich for their blood. Not to mention, the if you're going to be in a bubble situation, there's going to be some teams that are going to be playing on weekday afternoons probably, and that's far being primetime television. So that may alienate some of the regional sports broadcasts. So, and it just seems like there's more of a momentum toward playing in your own arena, but mm-hmm. I don't know, Mark. I mean, you can comment on this too. They're just, I don't, in Canada, that's rate. I know Winnipeg's having a lot of trouble right now with, with the situation they're on lockdown. I just saw a headline where Chicago's on lockdown and you can see a lot of these other, big markets probably going the same route. So how are you going to have any fans in the games? I mean, there there won't be any fans in the games. And would they even allow, I don't know, would some of these markets allow NBA and NHL games, regardless of fans in these arenas? I don't Mm. know. Before we talk about your interview with Jeff Blaschel, let's hear from former Red Wing and one of the most popular NHL referees, Wes McCauley. Joining us now is Wes McCauley, a former Michigan State Spartans defenseman from 1989 to 93, an eighth-round draft pick by the Red Wings, the Detroit Red Wings, in 1990, and now an NHL referee who is just back from the NHL bubbles in Toronto at Edmonton after working the Stanley Cup final for the eighth time in his 15-year career as a full-time referee. Wes Welcome to the podcast. Before you came to East Lansing in 1989, you were a teammate of Hall of Famer Eric Lindros with St. Mike's in Toronto. Lindros was so much bigger and stronger back then. The stats in your final year there, 67 points, 37 games, 193 penalty minutes. Lindros would eventually play here in Detroit the following year with CompuWare. 
Wes, for our listeners who didn't see Eric Lindros play, what was that final year like in Toronto? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so Eric and I, we were both um, rookies on that team, uh, along with another uh, guy at St. Mike's who, you know, um, we had a pretty good team that year. We ended up winning the championship. And mm-hmm. um, so – Another guy, he ended up, David Harlock, he ended up playing four years at the University of Michigan. But um, it's interesting, you know, uh, obviously Eric was in a, you know, a different um, category or stratosphere than the rest of us, right? Uh, He just, I mean, he's a 15-year-old young man that um, I don't think anyone really had seen a player like that who had... uh, uh, who was as big as he was, who could, who could skate the way he did. Uh, he could play the game any way you want it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, he was a physical player, but he also was, uh, um, you know, had, had great, uh, you know, great vision, great hands in around the net. Uh, and you know, he, he it's funny is he, he was a great teammate, right? Like he, he always deflected a lot of the attention to the older guys and, um, mm-hmm. you know, we all benefited uh, his teammates from obviously people came to, to watch Eric play, but uh, when they were in the rink watching Eric, uh, it, you know, it, it, it gave eyes on myself, David Harlock, you know, other guys that were part of that St. Mike's uh, buzzers team. Mm-hmm. Um, but one quick thing about him that I always, I always thought was, was interesting is uh, he, he was, he was probably the hardest or one of the hardest working guys that, uh, that I ever played with. He, he was always doing stuff after practice, before practice, always on the ice. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously he was a forward. I was a defenseman, just a small skinny little guy, probably 160 <laughs> some odd pounds. Um, you know, we do these little one-on-one drills and, um, I always had a knack for maybe having a little good, you know, a little, like a good stick that I could poke pucks away. I wasn't the most physical guy. And um, we do these one-on-one drills and I'd always poke the puck away from Eric and cause he'd be trying to beat me, but <laughs> he'd always get the last laugh. He always ran me into the end boards, you know, so I'd lose <laughs> my win. <laughs> but um, no, it was uh, obviously it, it, it was, uh, you know, it was great to play with them and a lot of other great players. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was a real memorable year because a lot of guys uh, moved on to, to play uh, past St. Mike's at the collegiate level or major junior level. And, and ultimately, uh, you know, when you win a championship, uh, you, you always have great memories. You know, Wes, you mentioned how nobody had ever seen anybody like that before. I remember talking to Marcel Pronovo at Windsor Arena about Eric Lindros. Pronovo was a scout with the New Jersey Devils, a Hall of Famer, former Red Wing. And I remember Marcel just saying, you won't believe what I just saw. Like you said, to combine that size and speed and talent. Uh, Eric Lindros also selected number 88, Wes, for his jersey to honor the memory of your late father, John McCauley. Your dad wore number eight during his NHL career, and that was from 1966 to 1981. And he later became, your dad later became the director of NHL officiating from 1986 to 89. How did Eric's relationship come about, though, with your father? Well, I think, um, you know, one one thing about uh, my parents was uh, they always they always wanted to help people and they were always happy for other people's success. And, and dad, you know, he just, I mean, <laughs> he marveled at, at Eric. Right. And, um, you know, they, they obviously go into games. My dad and Eric's dad, Carl used to travel to games quite a bit together in the car. So they, you know, and, and dad was always, um, always wanted to see Eric do well. And, and I think, maybe they were a little newer to the way hockey kind of worked or this, you know, how the progression goes from minor hockey to junior B hockey to major junior or college. And then to the national hockey league, obviously it was a little different back in the eighties than it is maybe more so now. And um, so I think they just built a real nice friendship and our Mm -hmm. families built a nice friendship to, over that, uh, over that time. And, um, you know, it was 
pretty neat um, that Eric would, you know, obviously, uh, you know, think of honor and dad in that way. And um, so, uh, so I know, you know, so it's it kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's obviously an honor, but it's also very humbling too, right? Tell us a bit about uh, your dad and when you first heard the news, you're a freshman, you hadn't even actually probably been on campus yet. Your father passed away June yeah. 3rd, 1989, Wes. So I'm wondering what it was like going into Ron Mason's program. I spoke with the goaltender who was a senior that first year, Jason Mazzotti, yeah. um, who uh, you bumped into uh, in the bubble when yeah. uh, he's now the goaltending coach with Carolina. But he was saying, you know, Mark, back then, you know, we didn't have uh, uh, the services that you would have now with coping with death. And Jason yeah. said that, that Ron Mason came over to him and said, you know, is, is, are you okay? And I'm just wondering what that was like coming here to East Lansing right after your father passed away at age 44. Yeah. Um, well, obviously it's, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm 17 years old and, mm-hmm. and what just a little backstory is, is, um, I don't, I'm trying to think maybe I was 13 or 14 and, and dad had, uh, he had gone to Michigan state to do a little bit of a, uh, a trial. I think the Canadian Olympic team was mm. playing there. I want to, I want to say it would be maybe 1985. I'm not a hundred percent sure, uh, mm-hmm. but I just remember dad had come back after a weekend there. Uh, and he said, you're going to Michigan state. And so my eyes that I guess had gone, you know, I've been thinking Michigan state, Michigan state. Uh, and then over the years before I became a freshman, dad was real good friends with the old CCHA commissioner, remember Bill Began mm-hmm. and dad and Mr. Began were good friends. And he, uh, so dad would, when he was the boss would put some of, some of his young officials doing the CCHA. So we would go, we'd go on the weekend and we would um, watch Michigan state play. And dad obviously would uh, uh, meet with the coaches or, you know, to see his young official. And so I, I it's, that's a place that dad always wanted me to go. Like, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, and, and I remember, uh, my, I signed my letter of intent at the NHL offices at just outside of Toronto in April of, of 89. Uh, the assistant coach at the time was George Gwazdecki, who ended up going on to Miami of Ohio then university of Denver, uh, you know, uh, just a, you know, a great coach, but an even better man. And, um, so, uh, and then you look at that happens in June, dad comes home from the playoffs was complaining, uh, you, you know, some health issues. We went into the hospital. He mm-hmm. had to have uh, emergency gallbladder surgery, and unfortunately, uh, you know, he he didn't survive that. And uh, fast forward two months later, I'm I'm off to I'm off to Michigan State, and uh, you know, it's kind of a small world. Like Jason, uh, um, Jason was at St. Mike's. Uh, um, before mm-hmm. I was right. Jason right. Bully was there before I was. So, so it was kind of neat to, I had a couple, you know, guys that you had looked up to when you were maybe in grade nine at St. Mike's went on to Michigan state. So it was, you know, when I walked in there, it was, it was uh, nice to have those, those guys there to support me and stuff. But to your point, I mean, um, obviously coaching is a little different, but um you know, Ron was, he was very good to me. He uh, would always check in on me, how mm-hmm. I was doing, just, you know, uh, maybe it wasn't as much of coming right out into your office and stuff, but, you know, he's a legendary coach, you know, for, you know, for, for great reasons, but um, he's a, you know, really good man. And, uh, you know, he, I guess growing up in an arena, he, he now kind of becomes that bit of a, you know, male presence to your right, especially being such a young age. And, uh, 
you know, I, I can't say enough uh, good things about how he treated me at uh, Michigan State, and even and even after uh, when I got into the officiating and everything like that, mm-hmm. he you know he'd come down to games in Florida. He always made sure to come into the dressing room and and say hi and uh, that. So you know, unfortunately, uh, you know he passed away there, and you know um, he did a lot of great things for not only myself but a, a lot of uh, a lot of men that went through or you know had the opportunity to to play for Ron. Wes, what were those four years like? That first year, um, you were drafted by the the Red Wings, which yeah, which was yeah, which um, which which was quite an accomplishment at the time. And you also wound up winning a Terry Flanagan Memorial Award given to the player who best demonstrates perseverance, dedication, and courage while overcoming severe adversity. So, four years, you're a defenseman on a really good team. Teams had a number of really good runs. You scored eight goals, a defensive defenseman. The Red Wings are right there as well, um, and and you're trying to move on. So, tell us what what comes to your mind, Wes, about those four years and the perseverance. Yeah, like, um, obviously a young a young guy coming from Georgetown, Ontario. I'd never really experienced, um, you know. I, I mean, Michigan State's like its own little, you know. I don't know. It's got forty forty thousand plus students, right? Um, and, you know, it's a lot bigger than our town was in Georgetown, and then to be exposed to the college football, the college basketball, and and then obviously, you know, you know, Mon Arena, uh, no better place to play, right? And we played to sell out crowds and we'd go down to Joe Lewis and, and play in front of 19,000 every night. Uh, I mean, it's uh, – words can't describe, uh, you know, how great it was, the memories, you you know, you look back on and the teams we had really my, you know, my freshman year, you know, to play with a guy, Kip Miller, who – wins the Hobie Baker. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we probably should have won the national championship that year. I think there was a little bit of questionable officiating there against <laughs> the BU series to go to the frozen four, but we won't bring that up. <laughs> we won't bring that up. Questionable <laughs> officiating. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it, I have a long, that was back 89, 88 or 89, 90. I still yeah. have a long, but, yeah. but I, I, you know, it, uh, I'm still, you know, best man at my wedding. I was best man at his wedding. Brian Smolinski, you know, we, we came up together as freshmen. And, you know, I, I still, I actually just got off the phone with him probably an hour ago. And so the friendships you make, uh, the opportunities. But, you know, I think the biggest takeaway for me was uh, Michigan State gave me an opportunity to not only um, pursue a dream of playing in the National Hockey League, but I also. Uh, you know, I also earned my degree and I'll say this, like when I graduated, when I was 21 years old or after four years, I, I had a degree in one pocket and the ability to go maybe try to get to the national hockey league as a player, obviously that didn't happen. But if I didn't have that degree, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm as comfortable trying to chase my dream as I was. And we'll take it a step further that I just um, I just completed my master's from Michigan State in um, sport coaching and leadership. So it can just by doing that, it, it can tell you the impact that that university had on me uh, even to this day at uh, 48 years old. How about your experience then, Wes, with the Red Wings? They were on their way to the Stanley Cup. They were a loaded team. You were a defenseman, eighth-round pick. If you take a look at your background, you played at the, with the Las Vegas Thunder, the Knoxville Cherokees, Muskegon Fury, Fort Wayne Comets. What was it like trying to crack that lineup? And any anything that you remember most about the Red Wings were on the brink of, of yeah. a championship with Steve Eiserman. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I was cracking that lineup because I think if you look <laughs> at the I think if you look at their draft year the year before. They oh, grabbed the guy. Yeah. They grabbed the guy who wore number five. Yeah, so, you know what I'm saying. I don't. I don't think they were too worried about Wes McCauley. No, um, the closest I was going to get to playing with him was refereeing him, standing behind him, watching him. <laughs> but uh, you know, I in the end, um, 
it, you know, I bounced around. It, it, it is what it is. Um, you know, I, I gave it a go for, for a few years and, uh, I, I played in multiple different leagues and, um, but I, you know, I wouldn't change anything, you know, I wouldn't change anything about it. It, uh, you know, I was able to kind of chase the dream of, from a little kid, try to get to the national hockey league. And, uh, I obviously didn't get there as a player. And fortunately for me, I, um, I, I've been able to get there, you know, with a uh, whistle in my hand, uh, versus a stick. You know, moving on, Wes, one of the people who uh, was part of your dad's life was Paul Stewart, who we talked to. And Paul Stewart credits your father for giving him a chance after playing in the NHL, for believing in him and making it into the NHL. Funny story, you've heard this many times, but Paul Stewart talked about 1976, his first game. Your dad's roughing and your dad throws him out for hair pulling. And I believe... Paul Stewart spent $800 on tickets and he said $800 for a dinner at Toot Shores in New York. So there, and then your dad said, I'll meet you down the road. He saw something in the bloodlines with his grandfather. Even of course, Paul Stewart's dad has officiated in the bean pot and other things as well. But I wonder what your thoughts are about Paul Stewart, who named his oldest son, Macaulay. He's a, and again, I just wonder about that connection between the two families. Yeah, it's pretty, it, you know, obviously Paul had a, had a tremendous uh, career. Um, he was inducted to the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame there um, last year. And I was, uh, I was honored to, to attend. It, it's, you know, I go back to a little bit is, you know, with that is, you know, he was always looking out and, and wanting to help people. And there's another example, you know, like he did with Eric and stuff like that. And like he did with, with Paul and maybe he saw, I don't know, maybe playing in the national hockey league isn't, isn't going to be something for you or, and it's something maybe to take a look at. When I was younger, I was still in, uh, in the American league. I, I worked, uh, I worked Stewie's thousandth game. I think I had I don't know one or two games uh, in in the league and and so it was it was um, quite the event. Right. <laughs> well, say. yeah. Well, he said yeah. that even in the third period, he gave you the puck and said, "You're yeah. now, yeah, you're in charge." Yeah, yeah. So um, it was it was uh, you know obviously you always it's pretty pretty nice to be asked to to work a gentleman's. Um, or colleagues, you know, a milestone game, which, you know, we all know a thousand games and uh, as a player, trainer, coach, it, you know, official is, is pretty significant in our business. And uh, it, it, I was early on in my career. And um, so it, it, uh, it was a pretty uh, neat experience and a very memorable one. Paul Stewart talked about uh, things that your dad taught him about judgment, patience, good knowledge. You have to know the book, experience, even courage, and also not to let down your other officials and not to let down people. Uh, Your dad apparently left a few ideas with you along the way. There were three that came up apparently in a note that uh, call the match penalties, call the scoring opportunities, and call the obvious foul that everyone sees. What do you think you learned from your dad with your relationship with the Paul Stewart's and the Dave Newell's and the Andy Van Hellemans and all the officials who came before who knew your dad and then all of a sudden they see you uh, take charge on the ice? What, what are your thoughts about what your, your dad taught you there? Well, I think right off the bat, I, I refer, you know, the, the three examples you bring up are, mm-hmm. was um, dad you know, dad uh just it's simple if you if you really think about it those three things are simple and and when you break it down it well okay if though if you were to analyze or review your game after and and that's what you've done you you know more times than not you you've probably done a fair and safe job but one thing i guess i i probably don't talk about enough with my dad or the influence from my dad was he loved the game of hockey. Mm-hmm. He loved being out on the ice. Unfortunately, he had the eye injury that that um, 
you know, took him off the ice. Then he was able to serve the game in a, in a different role as more of a coach, mm-hmm. um, mentor type to, to the Paul Stewart's, the Bill McCurry's, Don Koharski's, we could go on. Um, and I think that's probably when I go on the ice, I, I try, I'm there to, I'm there to serve the game. But the biggest thing I think is I love being out there. Like, um, I mean, really, at, at the end of the day, Mark, who's got the best seat in that? <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, sure, so, yeah. And, and I think that's one of the biggest things, yes, I've got all these little things that dad growing up or that I would see, but he just loved going to the rink. Like, when he was the boss and we would go to the rink with him, um, we would be there an hour and a half before the game. <laughs> you know, and and I think maybe for me – that's what I love to do. Like I, uh, I go out there, I get to referee in the national hockey league. That's mm-hmm. what I do for a living. And you know, <laughs> I, I've been, I, I get to see these phenomenal, I know I'm biased. I get to see these phenomenal athletes that do things and you're going, geez. And sometimes it makes me realize why well, I am ref and now I know why I never made it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but you know, I think, that's one thing I don't talk enough about is my dad's passion and, and how the passion he kind of just being in around the rink going, we'd go in playoffs, we'd go to the rink in the morning and after we'd watch the team skate and then I'd get to go on the ice or my brother and I'd go on the ice or whatever, you you know, like, so Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that's one of the other big characteristics or, uh, things dad passed down to me. Well, you know, Wes, uh, it's almost a, a gift, according to Jason Mazzotti and Paul Stewart, that that love of the game through your dad, I'm glad you're talking about it too, because both Jason and Paul said that what you do on the ice with the drama and the calls and being involved, that that comes from the heart, that it's not something was made up. It's It comes from the excitement of being there, and being part of the game, Paul Stewart even thought it might be a bit of a stress reliever too, but both of them said, and it's really quite a compliment, I think, that it's not something that was forced or that you planned, but it comes through. And I think that might be one of the reasons talking to them why it sort of resonates, this idea of you being one of the more colorful and personable refs. I wonder if you can like, draw that um, conclusion from maybe things yeah. that you have inside of you. Or, or it could be all those speech contests my mom again <laughs> when I was a kid, but uh, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's having fun too, Mark. Like we, yeah, you know, it's fun. I mean, it's a it's a kid's game. I mean, like you're out there, and and I think um, one thing that I try to, I I, I believe communication's a big. Uh, a big part of our job. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes I can maybe be communicate maybe a little too much that can, you know, I can talk a little too much out there. Sure. I can probably pull back. And, but I think the biggest thing, like when you're in anything that you do, but you know, in sports, you're, you show that you want to be out there. You show you care. I make mistakes. I, I make a lot of mistakes. Um, but if I show that I, you know, I care and I want to be out there, people have a little more time for you mm-hmm. because they know that you're not just out, that you're out there. You, you want to do the best you can. I want to work. I want to referee a perfect game. Am I ever going to referee a perfect game? Probably not. Do I strive to referee a perfect game every night I step on the ice? Yes, I do. Uh, but I think that's, one of the things that I, I try to you know when I drop the puck or when I show up to the rink, uh, okay, you know what? He's he's gonna do he's gonna do his best to to have a fair st- and safe game and I just want both teams to sit there and go, we're gonna get a fair shake tonight mm. when they see my name on the lineup. And yeah. So sometimes I yell into the mic a little more and, <laughs> uh, I guess and people I don't have a little more fun with it, social media. So uh, I don't know what the kid, you know, my kids are at that age, 19, 17, and 12. I'm not 
Sure, they think it's overly that the you know they they I think they think it's a little embarrassing, but <laughs> you know yeah well, we have some right Mark and so, well yeah and how about I believe I saw your children in one of the videos so they're probably teasing dad what are you doing so what's that been yeah. like with with your yeah. children yeah <laughs> yeah so we we were part of uh, during the pause um, and um, you know before we came back to the ice. I was part of a little show the NHL put on, um, you know, a, a hat trick trivia show that uh, PK Subban hosted. And I did a little segment on rules of the game and they would ask us to do little, I don't know, promos or whatever for the upcoming. And we had fun with it. It was, it was pretty neat. Um, you know, I look back and we have pictures, you know, I don't know, those little Polaroids back in the day of my mom and dad and brother, sister and I, and, now we have, you know, now we have videos, right? <laughs> so uh, that can be saved on your phone. And uh, we had, you know, we had fun. The, the kids, uh, the kids, all my kids and my wife, they all have a pretty good sense of humor and uh, we don't really take ourselves too seriously. So, uh, so uh, you know, what? It, it was something neat to do as a family, um, mm -hmm. you know, before I, I had to go away. Wes, where does you making the Stanley Cup final fit into how important things are for you? I saw the NHLPA voted you the number one official in 2018. Uh, you talk about the relationships that you've built, and both Paul Stewart and Jason Mazzotti said that, you know, you've been a defenseman, you've been through the system, you know what it's like. You you do have a lot of uh, snuts of um, – uh, appreciation for what everyone can accomplish. You mentioned a Nicholas Lidstrom and all these skills and all these people around you, but where does you moving sort of to the top? That's eight straight years that you've made the final. You were injured in 2019. I don't imagine it's something you talk a lot about, but you are at least among one of the, uh, the top officials. How important is that to you? Well, obviously when you, you know, get into, you know, something we, uh, the National Hockey League officials were, were, were made up of um, 80 officials. Mm -hmm. uh, 68 of them are 34 referees, 34 linesmen are full-time. And our goal every year to all 68 guys is, is to um, be one of the 10 officials left to, to work the Stanley Cup Finals. And I think that's just, um, you know, I, I've been fortunate that, I've been able to do it a couple times. Uh, I have a goal, you, you know, right. Every year when I go to camp, I, I want to stay at that level. It's, uh, you know, that's, that's, I guess how we measure ourselves. Right. And, uh, but you, you know, you, you work hard and you, you know, you train in the summer and mm -hmm. you know you try to, I, I think I go back to, I just try to go out every night and, I'll really look ahead. I, I, I try to do the best game I, I can that night on a Tuesday night and wherever it is, wherever I'm assigned. And, uh, but ultimately it's every guy in our staff, our, our ultimate goal is to be one of the 10 uh, officials representing mm -hmm. uh, our group in the end. Wes, just a couple of more uh, questions. You sort of went down the road of perhaps mentorship. You're only 48, 15 years as a full-time official, uh, given what your dad was able to do to be, uh, you know, an accomplished NHL uh, official and then the eye injury and then being able to mentor and to, and to, to, and to see talent in people and to develop those relationships and to help others. I wonder if you're there yet. Have you thought about it? You're still young, relatively speaking. How about mentorship? Is that something you've given well, any I, thought to? I, I think the one great thing about the, uh, four-man system we have now is is that um we're able to be on the ice together you, you know sometimes it's a couple senior guys sometimes it, you know it's a senior guy and a younger guy or senior guy and that you know um we're always i think we're always out to we're our own little team and it's it's no different than um in in a locker room but mm -hmm. I got to tell you this, Mark, I'm doing everything I can. Um, you're basically going to have to cut the skates off of me. Mm -hmm. And I just, I saw, I saw, I watched my dad um, for two years try to return from an eye injury. 
whether it be walk me to school and hop on a bus because he couldn't drive to go see another doctor to tell him, hey, John, you can see, or mm-hmm. this, you know, and I got to tell you, um, also from, you know, being a guy who played at the, you know, the lowest levels and never kind of kept getting, kept getting sent down, not, not get called up. Right. Uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. yeah no, I, I'm staying out there. Cause I, like I said earlier, it's, it's the best. Like, I mean, it's, there's no, uh, there's no better thing to do. Um, you know, that I can think of. And, and so you're gonna have to cut the skates off me. And I still wear the old <laughs> IBM blade stuff like that. So you still do. So, well, yeah. Those are wonderful memories to see the courage to see her parents because sometimes her actions speak louder than words. Because here's your dad, he was sucker punched during the 1979 like hockey series, uh, a, a summit series. He could have been bitter, but then you know it, it's interesting how we watch our parents, and those are things that you know, he, like you said, you know, he, maybe his eyesight wasn't good enough, but he had to get you to school. And I think those are memories that we remember most sometimes about our parents where they might wonder, Oh, did I teach them the right things? Well, yeah, you did dad, because you, you show, you showed up and you were there for me. That's really nice. No. And then, you know, and then I, I see my younger brother who was just starting, he played at Lake Superior and then he played in the minors, played in the East coast league and the American league. And he started, he was starting to move his way up the ladder and, Mm-hmm. He gets an eye injury. He takes a puck in the eye and he loses his eyesight. And, and so, you know, I, I guess deep down, there's a part of me that is, I feel like when I go on the ice, I'm maybe, you know, have a representing, you know, my dad and my brother a little bit because I know mm-hmm. yes. what they would do and what they did try to do, both of them, to go back to get on the ice and uh that's why it, um i'm gonna try to stay out till i'm like 62 or something like that i'm only 48 now <laughs> yeah so, hey, exactly might as well <laughs> might as well absolutely yeah. and and any final thoughts when you were in the bubble you're back home now you were away just like everybody else um again jason mazzotti talked about you guys having these competitive hockey games why not because you guys are out there like before the other teams came on the ice but when you yeah. look back at the bubble, I'm sure you had a chance to, uh, like you said, mentor. The format was good for others. Uh, probably a chance to think about your family, obviously, back home, your dad. Um, yeah. When you look back now, what, what, what do you make of what happened? So um, looking back, at, uh, you know, it's an extremely positive experience. I, you know, you have to give the league. Um, they did a tremendous job. And, you know, it's interesting because you, one thing I, I took away, mm-hmm. there was a lot of things you took away from the bubble, but one of the things I took away from how we interacted or got to meet um, different people that work to serve our game, the national mm-hmm. hockey, not just, you know, a lot of times we focus on the, the on ice product, right? The players, the coaches, um, that sort of thing. But uh, I got to interact and meet, people that, you know, broadcasting, events, uh, media relations, that just, they do, they have the same passion for uh, hockey that Wes McCauley does. I just happen to get to skate around under the, uh, you know, on the ice. They just happen to be maybe on the outside of the glass. So that was a really uh, neat thing, Mark. Um, and, and, it's nice to see like, you know, there are a lot of people that um, they have the same passion for NHL hockey or, or the game of hockey that, that you and I, that you and I do, they just, they just do it in a, in a different capacity. Um, So that obviously was, was, um, was great. And then the other thing was, is obviously we have a big, we have a big group of men and you, you don't really, come in contact with a lot of them throughout the year. And this was something that w- when you were together, we were in Toronto and Edmonton, there mm. was, you know, uh, a group of 20 in, in each city to start off with. You got to know um, 
some guys differently, you know, from a more personal level that you might only see them in Anaheim one night and then you don't see them until training camp again. Mm-hmm. And they're 32 years old. You know, they're telling you about their family and vice versa and stuff. So um, that, that was from a personal standpoint, I think that, you know, that was a, was a great experience. And then obviously the, you know, the game, I mean, you have to give these players credit. They, they just, I mean, the intensity and the, and the level that they played at was uh, second to none. And uh, you, you can just see that, you know, how, how great um, we always talk and, and we're biased. I mean, but how mm-hmm. great our, our, our people are and, and how great our game is. Wes, uh, again, thanks for uh, sharing your memories, some time, talking about the, the Spartans, the Red Wings, your father, and all the best as you keep skating until they take those skates off of you. <laughs> yeah, keep, you know, keep pumping me to like 62, okay, Mark? I, I exactly. I that, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. Hey. Take care. All <laughs> thanks, right. Wes. All right, see you, Mark. Great, right. thank you. Our thanks again there to Wes McCauley and Ted, the interview with Jeff Blaschel, it ran in the newspaper the other day and online. You can find it at DetroitNews.com. What were some of your takeaways talking to Jeff Blaschel, who now has a little more depth, a little more quality, but also more pressure now with the team that Steve Eisman is trying to put together? Yeah, I think he's very pleased. He was very pleased with what the management side of it did. I mean, there's a lot more depth, a lot more quality NHL talent on the roster. Uh, there's more pieces to play with. I think it gives him a lot more options. But bottom line, he is a man that wants to get back into the daily swing of things. He wants hockey. I mean, you could every word was dripping with that type of. <laughs> we were talking last segment about you know what, how what model to play. Are they going to play in a bubble or in how many games or arena to arena? I don't think Jeff Blaschel cares at all as long as there are hockey games. I mean, you figure these guys have not been in the hockey mode for eight months now. And that's just such a long time frame. They're just biting at the – chewing at the option to just get going here. Uh, and, I, and for a good reason for Blaschel, I think this team will be more competitive, at least more watchable. And it's all you can ask for at this point compared to last season. There'll be a slight change behind the bench. Adam Nightingale, one of the assistants last year, he's with the national team development program. So Dan Bilesma and Doug Huda will be back. If you look at the Tampa Bay Lightning, the Stanley Cup champions with John Cooper, he has Jeff Halpern and Derek Lalonde. So there seems to be more three-man staffs. Ted, I don't know how you feel about that. The, uh, the Red Wings going with one less coach this year. That's one way to save money as well. I know the Wings have put more money into the scouting department. That's probably a wise decision when you're rebuilding. But any thoughts about what it's going to be like with Blashill coming back with Bilesma and Huda? Well, that's been the case for – that's been the staff basically for the last couple of years. Uh, like you mentioned before, I think that there is going to be more pressure on him this year. Possibly. I don't mean, know. Again, it's going to be not your typical season. I mean, it sounds like it's going to be, you know, very much abridged, shortened. But, you know, you're paid to win, and I think they're going to be expected to win at least a little bit more than they did last year. So there's going to be, and again, it's going to be last year of his contract. So mm-hmm. interesting. I think, they, I think he realizes they have to do significantly better significantly be more competitive than they were last season. And finally, Ted, just looking at some of the lines and defensive pairings, you projected some possible ideas. And again, we don't have to go line by line as far as breaking it down. If you kept Bertuzzi, Larkin, and Mantha, could it be Nemesnikov, Fabry, Zadina, then Gagne, Filpola, Ryan, Helm, Glenn Denning, Nielsen with extras like Ernie and possibly Timoshoff, if he comes back, or Sveshnikov. When you look at that, so many options. Is there one player that sort of stands out with your projections? Like, could Nemesnikov be a second-line center? He's normally slotted in the number three position further down on a wing. Is there, a, is there somebody there that just stands out for you right now, Ted? 
I don't know, Mark. There's so, like he's mentioned, there's so many variables, so many options. I mean, mm-hmm. does Robbie Fabry play center? I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk about him using Fabry at center. Nemitz Dekanoff, yeah. I mean, he's, you could play him at the center of the wing. He, I mean, he's played what, effectively at, at both positions. And Bobby Ryan, do you play him in a top six role or a top nine role? He, see, he seems to think he came here on a tip, on a, top six type of situation, but I, I, if he, you play him in the top couple lines, I'm not quite sure where Fabry or maybe even Philip Zadina quite fit in, that, in those roles. Mm-hmm. I'd be kind of curious about Franz Nielsen too. I mean, I, just, I think I penciled him into a bottom six role, but I could very easily see Franz Nielsen being bumped off the out of the lineup, and that's a guy making well over five million dollars. So mm-hmm. that would be a tough one to take. So he does have Blashell does have options. It's a lot more better options than he has sure. last year or two, and that should be good news for the Wings and the Wings fans. And the rest of the uh, lineup quickly on defense, you had DeKaiser and Ronick, uh, Stahl and Stetcher, Nemeth and Merrill, Biega's left over, maybe Chalosky, and then in goal, of course, Bernier and Grice. Defensively, does anything again stand out there um, when you look at some of the new players like Stahl, Stetcher, and Merrill? I'm more interested about Dallas Chalowski's future. I mean, I don't know how he fits into that. I don't think he breaks into the top six, basically. So then what happens to Dennis Chalowski going forward here in the near short-term future? Does he have a future with the Red Wings? I mean, he's had two opportunities to start with the Wings at, at the start of the season, and both times he ended up in Grand Rapids. So... You really do wonder how many more chances Dennis Shalowski, how many more kicks at the can Dennis Shalowski has mm-hmm. with the organization. And one, what happens to a lot of those minor leaguers if the NHL does get going and well, the AHL, I mean, we have there's still so many questions surrounding the AHL. Does they, their season's supposed to start in February. Is it kind of going to be like a baseball situation where there's like a taxi squad and they just work out but don't play? or do get to play occasionally if the rosters are expanded. I mean, so many questions that are unanswered, Mark. You do wonder about a lot of those minor leaguers, what's going to happen to them. That'll wrap up our podcast for this week. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you soon, Ted. You too, Mark.